John chapter 5 is where we're at. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 30. But, um, give you a little bit of background, okay? Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he is at the pool of Bethesda. At the pool of Bethesda, multitudes of sick, ill, wounded people would hang out by the pool, and there was the legend that when an angel would come about once a day and stir up the waters, that the first one in gets healed, okay? And so, uh, you know... Who knows what happened, you know, if people actually were feeling better or if it was a placebo effect or something like that. But we were introduced to a man in John chapter 5 who'd been lame. And I'm not just talking about uncool, right? I mean, this guy was lame for 38 years. Maybe that is what he was healed from. I don't know, actually. Okay, no, he was lame. He was paralyzed because there's a mat involved. We know that. 38 years. Jesus even knows that it's a long time, it says in this chapter. And uh, Jesus just picks him out of the crowd and, uh, and says, hey, do you want to be healed? And he says, man, for 38 years, every time I try to get in the water, someone beats me into the water. It's just super rude, right? No one's thinking about other people and holding the door open for them back in those days. You know, it's just like firsties, right? And, uh, and Jesus just heals him right there. He just says, get up, take up your mat and walk. And immediately the man gets up, takes up and rolls up his mat and walks off. Now the problem was, this happened on the Sabbath day, okay? Happened on a Saturday. And, uh, and the Jews, the Jewish leaders, saw him pick up his mat and rebuked him and wondered why is he packing his mat. Uh, one of the laws wa- uh, that was especially made up by the, uh, the rabbis was that you couldn't pack anything out of your house or into your house. And here this guy's packing his mat around. And so they challenge him on it, and he just says, hey, the guy who told me to get up and walk also told me to pick up my mat. Seems like a pretty good authority to listen to, right? And uh, later on in the temple, Jesus sees this now healed man and says to him, hey, don't go back and start sinning again or something worse will happen to you. Now, there's a little bit of interpretive deduction that can happen there that this guy was probably doing some sort of sin that led to his paralysis 38 years ago. Jesus knows the thoughts and intents of this guy's heart. As John chapter 2 finished up saying, Jesus knew what was in man, and he knew what was in this man. And this man, it seems, did not appreciate that Jesus kind of called him out on his sin and told him to repent of it, because he goes immediately from there to tell the Jewish leaders, it was that guy over there that told me to pack my mat and to walk on the Sabbath day. It's what we call nowadays throwing Jesus under the bus, okay? And, uh, and so those guys go and they confront Jesus and, you know, what are you doing? Because to the Jews, it's one thing to err in this way on the Sabbath. You could go make a sacrifice and kind of cleanse that up or cover over that. Um, but if you were to cause someone else to sin in this way, that's a crime punishable of death, okay? And so Jesus begins a dialogue with these Jews that he has authority to make such a command on the Sabbath day. And so if we start in verse 17, Jesus answers them saying, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. What Jesus did there, and two weeks ago we started out 
into the, an introduction to this. It was part one of this. And we talked about how um, the Jews understood that Jesus, as we sang, never stopped, never stopped working. Okay? Um, that even in creation, though he rested, he was still working. And that because he holds all things together, he must have never stopped working in, in the history of time because he, it, all things are held together and it would just have exploded. You know, nothing would, we'd all be, I don't know what, you know, paste or something like that. You know, use your imagination. And, uh, and they know, they know God always is working. And so Jesus says, the father has always been working. Little secret for you. I've always been working. And the very next verse tells us that they knew that he was making himself equal with God right there. Jesus was claiming to be deity. And if you start witnessing and sharing the gospel with people in the cults of this day, you always know if someone is in a cult by how they be, what they believe about Jesus, okay? Do they believe that Jesus is the son of God, which means that he is God the son? Okay. Do they believe that he is deity? Do they believe that he is God? Do they believe that there never was when he wasn't? Okay. Um, that is Orthodox Christian faith. We believe that Jesus is God. He's not the Father. He's not the Holy Spirit. He's always existed in communion and fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. He created the world. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. All things were made through him and for him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Okay. So he's God. And the cults will say, he's not God. He's a created being. He's an angel. He's a created thing, okay? Um, or he's just a prophet. Or he's just a man. Something like that. But Jesus here in the Gospel of John, the cults will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. And right here is a passage, and this passage that we're reading through, in this verse specifically, the Jews knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. Jesus knew Jesus was claiming to be God. John knew Jesus was claiming to be God. The whole theme of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the Son of God. It says in John chapter 20, these things were written so that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's God. And that by believing in these things, you may have life in His name. That's the theme verse of the Gospel of John. I think it's like John 20, 31. Okay? Um, so, all that to say, Jesus is going to go into this great discourse and how He is equal to God the Father in a few different ways, okay? Really in all ways, but he's going to get into last time we were together. He's equal with God in his nature. That's in verses 17 and 18. Equal with God in his nature and that he's the son of God. He's always been working. He's equal with God, verse 18. Then verses 19 through 21, Jesus preaches about his equality with God the Father in power, Okay, so let's read verses 19 through 21 together here. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to all whom he will. So he is equal with God in power. Most of the time in Christian theology, and as we're talking, when we're referencing God, we're talking about God the Father. Okay, you just don't have to make that distinction. When we're talking about Jesus, he's God the Son. When we're talking about the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God the Holy Spirit. 
And in these verses that we just read, 19 through 21, he is equal with God the Father in power. Okay, he raises the dead. And that's going to kind of bleed into or blend into some of the verses that we're going to study today. They're important verses. You might underline them. The Father is a God that raises dead and gives life to them. That was in verse 21. And the Son will also give life to whomever he will. And he just did that that day. He just gave life, um, though it's though it physical life, a uh, new life in a sense, to this lame and crippled man there at the pool. And that brings us into verse 22 today. I encourage you to listen to a couple weeks ago. I was gone last week. Johnny preached a great sermon on the Lord's Day. And now we're kind of doing part two from two weeks ago where we will study that Jesus will preach his equality with God in authority. Okay? He's equal with God in authority and that he's the bringer of judgment. All right? Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. You guys, we are living in a day and age where the world wants to close an eye to what the Scripture has to say about the character of God, the actions of God, the, the, the holiness of God, the judgment of God, the wrath of God. We want to um, take all the things that make us feel good and give us tingles on the back of our neck and give us some sort of excitement and some sort of... Um, uh, isolated hope without the truth that goes along with all of those wonderful things that, you know, maybe it's severe. As the Bible says in the book of Romans, consider the goodness of God and the severity of God. Both of those things are true of God. And it's true of our Jesus that he has had judgment committed to him. And the Jews knew that judgment was an aspect that belonged to God. In Genesis 18.25, at the end of the verse, it says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Seems like uh, in the last few years, justice is even more of a buzzword than ever before. Social justice, we all desire justice, but really it's, it's an ancient Word And it's an ancient desire. You read the Psalms, uh, you read the law of Moses, and God's a God of justice. He desires justice for his people, the widow, the orphan, those of various races. God is a God of justice. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right in his justice and in his judgment? Now, giving life is part of being God. We love that. We just read that. Giving life. Yes, God, you are the giver of life. You know, I just picture a dead twig and it has a little green thing pop out of it. And it's like, ooh, you know, new life. So wonderful. You know, the birds chirping and the flowers blossoming and all of that. But also, just as he is the giver of life, judgment is also part of being God. Sometimes we love certain attributes of God that we think that that attribute must stamp over and eliminate other attributes of God because they seem to be the antithesis of each other sometimes. As the Son has claimed authority to raise the dead and give life, wonderful, He also claims the authority to execute judgment. Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching in Athens and it says that because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by the man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And so as Paul is preaching, he says there's going to be a day where there will be a judgment. In fact, it's an appointed day. We know November 3rd or the second Tuesday of the month or the first Tuesday of the month is election day, right? It's a day that is appointed and it's kind of right. There's also a day that's on God's calendar. He knows when it is. A day has been appointed when he is going and, and by the he, the context of it, the little the he there is Jesus. Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. Okay? Forgive me. God the Father will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That man is the one who's been risen from the dead. The assurance, the guarantee, the stamp has been given when he rose Jesus from the dead. Okay? So a great proof text there. Acts chapter 17. There's going to be a day of judgment, a day of reckoning, as Martina McBride loved to put it in her Independence Day song. And, uh, and who will do that but the Son? Okay? Well, Judgment Day, what are we supposed to do with John chapter 3, verse 17? The verse after John 3, 16. Because John chapter 3, 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him must be saved. So we just take that one verse and we eliminate everything else in the Bible and we say, God doesn't judge. Okay? Um, okay, so God's first time through was as a God of a, he was a humble servant and he come to lay down his life for the sins of the world. Uh, he did do a work of, of judgment just by being who he was. There was a purification that happened. But it's in his second coming, as we just finished studying the book of Revelation, that we see Jesus not as the lamb that was slain as much as we see him in Revelation, as the conquering lion, the one who's coming in judgment. Yes, he's seen as a lamb who's slain for the sins of the world, but he's coming also in power and in might to set up his kingdom and his throne and to vanquish his foes. And so it's important for us to know, it is so important, because in this day where you can listen to any sermon online from any preacher that you want to, you're going to be hearing from popular guys that God does not judge and that God does not send people to hell and that God is not a God of wrath towards sin and sinners, okay? We kind of have the love, the love, the sinner, hate the sin, but biblically, God hates the sin and the sinner will be judged, okay? The sinner has made his mark. At that point on judgment day, there's no going back. And so salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin, for God to save the world and defeat the wicked foes is something that does not happen in a vacuum. I go, everyone's saved, and all of the wickedness, I don't know, it just kind of, you know? No, he, he has made us in his image, and he's set up ways for us that, that he kind of shows us how he works. He's a God of justice. He's a God of rules and rightness and measures and and, uh, and when we rebel against him and without humility repent and come to him in his way for forgiveness and acceptance and repentance, he judges that. And he will judge with hot, fiery anger his enemies. 
Why? Verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, guys, this is ironclad evidence of Jesus' deity. This is right in the margin of your Bible. Put some brackets in there. The deity of Jesus highlighted in purple or yellow or whatever you want just so that your heart knows where to go, your mind knows where to go when you're sharing the gospel and who Jesus is so that your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers can also believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing they may have life in his name. Get these, these verses down and, and you know, pressed into your heart because they are ironclad evidence of Jesus' deity. Isaiah 48, 11 tells us that it's for God's sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned and I will not give my glory to another? So we know from Isaiah that God will not share his glory with another. And while God is singular... There's a cluster within that singularity. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word for one, that the, the Jews pray every day, the Shema. Shema, Israel, Adonai, Eloedo, Adonai, Echud. The word Echud is, it means one. The Lord our God is one. And it's a cluster. It's like a cluster of grapes. One cluster of a few different grapes on there. There's one God, and he exists as the Father and then there's the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three in one, tri-unity. Okay? And so we know that he's not going to share. Just no, Not just anybody can be worshipped. I will not share my glory with another. And yet, judgment has been committed to the Son so that all would honor, worship, and magnify the Son just as they honor, worship, and magnify the Father. Like what Matt Carter said. You pious and sanctimonious men, Jesus says to these Jewish leaders. Your lives are supposed to be the paragon of obedience and submission to God. But you do not submit to my authority. You are in absolute rebellion against God. This is a compelling reminder of the centrality of Jesus Christ to God-pleasing worship. We live in a pluralistic society. A society that promotes the equality of all religions. But God's word is clear. Any system of worship that does not honor Jesus Christ as the true God is from hell. It is a lie of Satan. And one of the ways, and we see it in this election, we see it on, but you know what? We see it in both parties. We see it in people that are waving Trump flags, people that are waving Biden flags. They don't have a, a solid, rock-solid, biblical doctrine of who God is who Jesus is, the morality of the scriptures, judgment and wrath towards sin, salvation through Jesus Christ. They just don't know it, okay? So they might be voting blue or red, but they're perishing because they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And one of the current ways that Satan is trying to attack the deity of Jesus Christ is through the religion of tolerance that is out there today. The religion of tolerance is a completely different agenda that Satan has brought in front of us. It essentially says we must affirm that all religions are equally true. But that's not tolerance. That's an entirely new religion. John Calvin said it well 450 years ago that Muslims and Jews give the God they worship 
beautiful and magnificent titles. However, we should remember that whenever God's name is separated from Jesus Christ, it is nothing more than empty imagination. Okay, and I hope you take, I hope you might not be writing it down, but you know, George Strait's talking to you right now, write this down, take a little note to remind you in case you didn't know that he loves you. Okay, okay. Okay, so, guys, I can't even tell you how if you were to have a conversation with the people in your circle, the majority of people would ultimately say, oh, as long as they're good people, they pay their taxes, they don't hurt anyone with what they're doing, you know, at the end of it all, it doesn't really matter, we're all going to heaven. All right? It's in the First Baptist Church, it's probably here at Calvary Chapel, it's probably at Eastside, it's probably at the Ascent, it's probably at the Biker Church, it's probably at the Nazarene Church, because... Because Satan is deceptive, okay? Hold your Bible, read it every day. Let it be the authority of your life. Let the elders and shepherds and pastors that God's put over your life help tend you in the word so that we stick to it and we rightly interpret it according to the rules of grammar and literature. Peter tells us in um, 1 Peter that there is no scripture that's of private interpretation. You don't just get to interpret it however you want. There are rules to interpreting the scripture, okay? And it helps us stay on the straight and narrow because narrow is the path that leads to salvation. John chapter 3, verse 18, right after we're told that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but through him they might have life in his name, then it goes on to say, he who believes in him is not condemned. Praise the Lord. I hope you've believed in him today. But... He who does not believe is condemned already. Like right now, if you don't believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world, the Savior who takes away your sins, and the Lord of your life who gets to tell you how to live and and what your godliness should look like, if you're in rebellion against that, right now, in this place, you stand condemned already. That's the bad news. It says because you've not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. You haven't believed in the one who's come to rescue you. He's there in a giant Coast Guard lifeboat reaching out to grab you, and you're, I will not. I wanted a helicopter. You know, whatever. Like, nothing I can do. He doesn't want to go. You're resisting. Your heart is hard. And so when we have people coming who preach a different gospel... Those two ladies who knock on your door, as sweet as they are, as nice as their broom skirt looks. You know what are those skirts called? They go all the way down and they kind of, there's always the broom skirt. It's not a broom skirt, I don't know. As nice as they are, they're put together. They look very moral is what I'm getting at here. Give me a little grace on the broom skirt thing, okay? You're like, I'm wearing a broom skirt. (laughs) As sweet as they are. Or they've got suits on. And they, they're wearing a little Stetson. You know, Cologne always makes it official. Okay? And they've got, you know, a real black Bible with real gold foil on it. A little bit of a different translation. The translators didn't know Greek, but none of that. That doesn't matter. And they're going to stand there on your porch as sweet as they are, or kind as they are, as polished or moral as they are, if they do not submit to Jesus Christ They are dishonoring the Son and they are condemned already. No grace for that. 
They are currently in the place of condemnation. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, says that God exalts Jesus. God the Father has exalted Jesus and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You guys, this section of Scripture not only shows us the importance of, of understanding the deity of Jesus, but it also shows us the importance of the Great Commission. That people need to hear the gospel. They need to hear who Jesus is so that they can believe in Jesus and be saved. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 15. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a belief in the gospel, confessing it. It's making it real. It's a confession. This is what I believe. My creed. You'll be saved. And then there's a little breakdown. Hey, with, from with your heart, you believe unto righteousness. And there's confession. It just it seals it. It's, it's made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then there's a great question that helps us understand how important the Great Commission and evangelizing and witnessing and going out into the world is. How will they call on him in whom they've never believed? How are they supposed to call on him to be saved if they've never believed in him? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching, without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're equipped here and sent out there? So every Sunday, you guys are equipped for the work of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus, and you're sent out those doors so that people can hear and believe and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. You see the ladder that it is, the step? And it begins with y'all being obedient to the Great Commission and telling people about Jesus. John, the, the gospel evangelist, uses language that implies that Jesus by divine decree, receives honor in judgment that belongs to the God of Israel alone. And when Jesus receives such an honor, the glory of the Father is not diminished at all, but rather the glory of the Father is enhanced. For as Jesus receives the honor, Philippians 2.11 says, that it's to the glory of God the Father. There's mutual Worship that happens when the Son is worshipped. When the Son is exalted, the Father is glorified. So to honor the Son is of the Father's good pleasure and vice versa. F.F. Bruce writes, So completely one are the Father and the Son, so perfectly does the Son manifest the Father, that no one can at the same time refuse the Son's claims and pay honor to the Father. Jesus' opponents thought they could do this very thing, but they were mistaken. Let's see, where are we at here? You guys are tired, I can tell. Um, we're going to just move on a little bit more. We're going we're gonna to go a little bit more. 
Now I can't find my place in my notes, which is not embarrassing at all. Backing up. This, they teach you this in public speech class. Just look like an idiot for a little bit. Everyone will feel better about themselves. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we are in verse 24. So watch out, guys. There's more coming as Jesus just is bringing the hammer out with his deity. Verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Has a little bit of the ring of Romans chapter 10 to it, doesn't it? About hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, calling upon the name of the one that you just believed in, and being that ladder that we talked about. Um, it's a little bit here in verse 24. If you hear Jesus' word and you believe in him who sent him, you have everlasting life. Now, spiritual awakening does not happen away from the word of God. Jesus says, he who hears my word and believes. Oh, but Jesus didn't really mean that. Well, look at the first words of this verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, truly, truly, I'm telling you, verily, verily, don't try to sidestep this. You've got to hear the gospel. You've got to hear the word of God. As you hear the word of God and believe, you'll have everlasting life. You'll be saved. Have you heard the word of Christ? Have you heard the word of Christ? Have you believed the word of Christ? Have you been saved? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2 tells us that, uh, that the gospel was preached to us as well to, as to them. And it's speaking of to the Jews. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Okay, so you can sit in church every day of your life and hear every message from the Matt Chandlers, the John Pipers, the Alistair Beggs, the John MacArthur's, whoever else that you think is one of the famous preachers out there, Billy Graham, okay? You can sit there and listen and listen and listen and listen and listen. But if there is never any faith or belief to receive this word into your heart, to let the Holy Spirit plant it in there and press it in and change who you are, then you're still condemned. There's a level of this that has to do with God's sovereignty. Actually, I would say all of it is under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. God is there and he's calling you. He's calling you. He's calling you. But there is a point where you need to say a response to the Lord a prayer to the Lord, a cry to the Lord. I believe this, God. Or, this is difficult for me. It's something I can't wrap my mind around. What's going on here? But I know you're true. I know you're right. And I know it says this. And so I humble myself before you and I say yes to you, God. I say amen to you. I say you're right. I say have your way in me. I'm like a little kid right now receiving your kingdom. And I'm slobbering and I got snot and my diaper's wet. But Lord, hey. You say that unless you're like the little children, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. So here I am, Lord. But the Jews who were religious, very outwardly moral, outwardly clean, religious dudes, got the rituals down. 
They had the Torah. They had the law. They were custodians of the scripture. But there was never belief and mixture. Mixed with belief. Belief creates obedience to the word. Okay? Uh, As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, those who believe obey. Okay? And, uh, And so what we have here is Jesus saying... You hear my word. By the way, notice it's my word. Synonymous with God's word. And you believe. It's mixed with faith. With faith in the Father who sent me. The plan of the gospel. It's almost a John 3.16 verse. You'll have everlasting life. You will not perish, but have everlasting life. You will not pass into judgment, but will pass from death to life. And so we see that our response now to the word of God, even today, you're hearing stuff today that is controversial in the world out there. It's stuff that the news networks don't want anyone saying. In fact, it's probably going to be very soon, it's going to be illegal to preach this message from the pulpit, open air, post it online. You're going to be going to jail. You're going to be going to jail. No, I will be going to jail. Okay? Because the world hates this. It's an affront to the world. This is, it's happening in France right now with the Muslims and, and the freedom of speech and religious tolerance and not offending people. Guys, the gospel is an offense. Sorry. The gospel confronts. Confrontation offends. Requires humility to work through and reason through things and to be humble to say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Okay? It's offensive to get to the place where you do that. And the free speech thing that we're going through today, it's very, very possible that, you know, in the next less than 10 years, there's going to be pastors in jail for preaching a message like you're hearing today. That pluralism and tolerance and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You won't be able to preach that anymore, okay? Uh, And so today, count yourself blessed because you're sitting here and you're hearing it in truth. And what are you going to do with it? Are you going to fold your arms and cross your arms? Just got to get through right now. Just got to get through right now. Man, could you just humble yourself? Just hear from the Lord today. And just say, you're right, Lord. You're right. Have your way in me. Do what you need to do in me. Mix this heart with faith and the word. I believe in the gospel. I believe in your way of salvation. And if you would do that, look at the end of the verse, verse 24. Look at the tense. But has passed from death to life. If you believe what's happened already is that you've already, because you're saved, because you're born again, because you're a new creation in Jesus Christ, you already, you don't got to wait till the rapture, you don't got to wait till the second coming, you don't got to wait till the resurrection. Already, right now, you have life. And you're no longer in death. Who can make life out of death? Jesus. Buddha may give a code of ethics, but he can't do this. He can't pass you from death to life. In fact, all of Buddhism is trying to get to a place where you're just gone. Doesn't matter if you're reincarnated to be something better, maybe even a god. Doesn't matter if you're reincarnated to a better place as a king or as a queen or as a princess. That doesn't matter. 
Because all of life is suffering. More money, more problems. Okay? You're a princess. Oh, no. Now you got all of that to deal with. Ah! Okay? And so Buddhism is all about getting to a place where you are snuffed out. It's called nirvana. Great band in the 90s, let me tell you. Okay? Um, actually, I don't even know what they play. Um, they still around? No, I'm joking. Okay, I, I know what happened. Okay. Who's wearing flannel today because of Kurt? Anybody? No? Okay, John? Okay. Uh, man, the whole point, man, if I can get to nirvana, I'm snuffed out like a candle. And I no longer go through this rigmarole of doing good karma and getting to be a princess or a prince or a king, but still having problems. Being a god, oh man, you are a god. You got more problems than you even know. Oh, oh no, I totally messed up that. Now I'm down, I'm a worm. Okay. Oh, but I was a good worm. I just want to be snuffed out. Can you snuff me out already? That's what Buddha has to offer. World religions class today at Calvary Chapel. And you can quote me on it. Ting ting walla walla bing bang. Okay. But Jesus promises everlasting life and life abundantly. Assuredly, I say to you, even if you're a thief on the cross on your deathbed, you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be with me in paradise. That's the, light. That's the message of Jesus. John Wesley wrote a hymn. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. And that'll bring us into next week. It all ties together that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. There will be a wonderful resurrection of life and everlasting life. But also for those that have rebelled and are condemned already, a resurrection to judgment and everlasting judgment. We'll get there next week.